Um, I, I hate to say it, I have no dramatic entrance this week. No flips, no popcorn. Jared was so mad at me last week for popcorn. That was perfectly good popcorn. Yeah. See, he's still not over it. He's still upset about it. And uh, so I am not going to have any dramatic introduction. I am going to talk about my dad, though, because it's Father's Day, and I talk a lot about my dad. And some of you said, hey, it's okay. I like hearing about your dad. But I, lo I love my dad. I dearly love my dad. I still love my dad. And my dad and I rarely disagreed. We rarely disagreed. But I can remember one stormy night at the kitchen table Back in Ohio, my dad and I had a very heated discussion, and it was about our jobs. Because men take a lot of pride in their jobs. In some sense, it's kind of who we are. At the time, my dad and I both were working in sales. He was a national sales manager for a company, and I was a sales just person for Honeywell. And the discussion was about how I hated sales. <laughs> He's like, what? you hate sales? I said, Dad, I'm not any good at it. He said, oh, sure you are. You're good at it. You just have to learn some techniques of how to close the sale. And once you learn those techniques, you'll be really good and you'll love it. You'll love it. He said, you know what? I've closed a lot of sales and I don't even like some of my products. And I said, Dad, that's my problem. My problem is this. I believe you need to sell a product that is so good you just take the order. It's no big deal. And he goes, no, I'll never be an order taker. And I'll say, Dad, that's all I want to do is be an order taker. And so, to this day, I'm not in sales anymore. My dad, however, stayed in sales, and I became a preacher. And one of the reasons I became a preacher is because I love the product. Actually, it's not a product. It's a person. It's a person by the name of Christ. And I get to promote him. Tragically, a majority of preachers these days are only salespeople. They've learned how to use the latest techniques to get people to, in a sense, close the deal. To believe something they're not even sure they even understand or believe in. But yes, I believe. What do you believe? I don't know, but I'll walk forward or I'll say yes to something. Salesmanship, I believe, is ruining the integrity of our message especially when preaching focuses more on the style of the preacher, the words he uses, the gestures he perfects than the person of Christ. This is a big problem in the early church, and it drove Paul crazy, and that's what he's going to talk about here in 1 Corinthians. So if you can stand, we're going to go to our next section. Actually, I'm going to divide this up in two. It's going to be Preaching the Gospels, the title. This is part one. And then part two is going to be next week. And the title for today is we're going to talk about two types of preaching. Starting in verse 17 to 31, but I'll only read to 21. Verse 17, chapter 1. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? 
Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. You may be seated. So you could say it like this. Preaching what I'm doing right now and what you come to listen to, preaching matters to God. Paul even says, that's the whole reason I was sent. In verse 17, Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach. In this section, he just got done about arguing who's the best. Apollos, Paul, Cephas, Jesus. And he said, you know what? Let's not make teams. In fact, I don't like loyalty to me. And so I stopped baptizing because, he says, I've been called to preach. He was sent to preach. Generally speaking, when it comes to preaching, there's two things involved. When you preach, the person's involved, the person who God sends. Actually, what matters most is his character, not necessarily his style of preaching. But modern-day preaching, a lot of focus is on style. The second thing that matters is the message, the content, the subject matter. Paul says preaching is about the gospel. Listen to what he says. For Christ did not send me to baptize, this is verse 17, but to preach the gospel. So Paul says that's the content, the good news of Christ, the good news of Jesus' coming, death, and resurrection. And according to Paul, without the gospel, you have nothing to preach. You have nothing to say up here. And so Paul is going to make it quite clear that there's a big problem in the first church. Because what was happening, preachers would come that looked good on the outside, kind of like a golden cup. Man, it looked good, but they were empty on the inside. That's why Paul says, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And here's the problem with empty preaching. Verse 18 says, people perish because of it. Perish means they are on their way to condemnation. Preaching matters. And then he says there's another kind of preaching. It's not impressive. First one's impressive, not effective. The second one's not impressive, but boy, is it effective. It's called powerful preaching. Paul says the cross of Christ is powerful. Powerful, so powerful, verse 18, it says it's causing people to be saved. That means it's causing them to escape this life of condemnation and to be made new creatures delivered for God. So these are the two types of preaching. And what we are hoping to do, and what Paul was hoping to do, is be the second kind. But let's talk a little bit about the first kind of preaching. Because some of you, honestly, that's what you're looking for. The first kind of preaching, empty preaching, above all else, it says, uses words that are eloquent. See that in verse 17? Eloquent words of wisdom. Other verses, uh, uh, other translations call this, this word clever words. It's the kind of preaching, one man said, that is so good. It's so good. You can like what the person is saying without believing anything that he's just said. It's such good preaching. Man, did you like what that guy said? Yeah, he was funny. Oh, I love his words. What would he say? I have no idea, but I could listen to that guy talk forever. That's the kind of preaching we're talking about. In Paul's day, they had these guys come in that were sophists. What they learned is Greek rhetoric. They learned how to use the right cadence. 
the right gestures and use the right words. And uh, the problem with these guys is they tickled ears. Not just they tickled ears, but they warmed hearts. And oh, man, did they impress the intelligent, or what Paul is saying here, the naturally wise. And by this word, it means the people who are sophisticated, who are intelligent. And in our culture, it's the people that are cool and stylish. And this kind of preaching impresses them. You could say it like this. Clever's preaching aim is to please the wise, appeals to them, to win the audience. I remember back at Moody, I went to Moody Bible Institute in Chicago in the 1990s. They have a big church over in Chicago called Willow Creek. And the pastor at that time was Bill Hybels. And Bill Hybels was a gifted preacher. I mean, he was good. He was young looking, and he, he would talk. He would talk like this. And when he would talk, he would walk like this. Every once in a while, he'd put his hand in his pocket perfectly. And he'd have a crease right down the middle of his pants. I think every time he preached, he bought new pants. And then he would walk to this side. And he would say, we need to rub shoulders with unbelievers. And the cadence was perfect. And honestly, he was gifted. He was an amazing. But the thing about it is my roommate at that time went to his church, and Bill Hybels was his hero. And my roommate was kind of uncouth, not that classy, didn't clean the shower, you know, kind of that guy. You would, you would have dinner with him, and he'd wipe his mouth like that, kind of, you know, talk like that a lot, you know, talk real fast like that. But then when it came to preaching class, something happened to him. Down on, the, you know, on his desk, he would be my roommate. And then he would come up to the pulpit, and something changed. So, like right about here, I think, something happened. He turned into Bill Hybels. And he got up, and all of a sudden he went. You know, and he'd say over on this side, and God wants us to rub shoulders with the unbelievers. And I'm like, oh, that's Bill Hybels. I wanted to scream in class. That's not you. That's empty Preaching, it has three things that you could categorize about. It's pretentious. Pretentious means I put on an air of somebody I'm not. One person said our culture has pretentious preaching focuses on being hip and casual and the appearance of artlessness, like you're not really smooth. You, some people stutter and it, 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 it sounds like I'm really smart. I don't know if you've ever seen people talk like that, but that's the way to talk now. And it's ten, intended to have a mesmerizing effect, even dressing casual. That's why I wore these shoes. So you'd be mesmerized by my style. Then you have superfluous words. Use words that are, you know, they're, they're big words. They're almost too big, and nobody knows what they're talking about, but it sounds so good. Let me give you some. We need to lean in. We need to balance nuance. We need to unpack this package passage. We need to start restorative conversations, create safe space, use due diligence, understand the metrics of cultural algorithms. Be careful of our quid pro quo. Catalyze change, harness a collective effort of intentionality when it comes to communal sustainability and learn the art of practice justice. I don't know what that's talking about, but it sounds good. It sounds like somebody read a book, and when somebody reads books, they must be saying something, but I don't know what they're saying. And then the third thing is sentimentality. Sentimentality often is feigned emotion. 
emotion for the purpose of moving a person. And because of empty preaching, verse 21 says it only leads to ignorance. Look at verse 21. For since the wisdom of God, the world didn't know God through this kind of wisdom. They don't know God through this wisdom. They don't know God. It's empty. It's pointless. Ezekiel's interesting. He talks about what people would like to hear in a preacher. This is the kind of uh, heart of a person that likes empty preaching. So my people come, pretending to be sincere and sit before you. They listen to your words, but they have no intention of doing what you say. Their mouths are full of lustful words and their hearts seek only after money. You are very entertaining to them, like someone who sings love songs with a beautiful voice or plays fine music on an instrument. They hear what you say, but they don't act on it. That's the kind of listener that likes empty preaching. But there's another kind of preaching, and it's power preaching, powerful preaching. Paul says it in verse 17. Verse 17, let the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Verse 18, for the word of the cross is the power of God. The power, that means life-changing, actually changing a person from somebody who's going to perish into somebody being saved. It has power, which means it's effective for those people who are being saved. So instead of being pretentious, superfluous, instead of being sentimental, Paul says this kind of preaching can be described in only one way. Power preaching is foolish. Huh? He says that all through this passage. Look at this in verse 17. Wait, no, it's verse 18. For the word of the cross, it's folly. Folly. Verse uh, 21. For since the wisdom of God, the world didn't know God through wisdom. It pleased God through folly. It's folly. Verse 25. The foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. Powerful preaching is foolish. You're like, what? Then why preach? Gordon Fee says, the reason why it's foolish is no one in their right mind would have dreamed up this scheme for, for redemption, for salvation. It is too preposterous. It's humiliating that God would die. God's dead? That's salvation? In fact, nobody of standing and nobody of sophistication would be caught dead believing it. You could say it like this, to the average person, real preaching at first hearing makes no sense. Makes no sense. Why? Because there's nothing in the message that any proud, any intelligent, like people that like their intelligence, or anybody that wants to be wise in other people's eyes would be attracted to. There's nothing attractive about it. Look at verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. God wants to get rid of pride. That's the point. And what has the proud, wise, and intelligent scribe and lawyer, debater done for the world? Verse 20 says, where is the one who's wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater? And this is coming from Isaiah, a passage in Isaiah. And Isaiah is basically talking about people who are wise in their own eyes. He says in Isaiah 26, 18, they have not brought salvation to the world. So where are they? They come and they make you impressed, but have they saved your soul? 
and what he's saying is that kind of preaching doesn't work and they don't last too long and actually in that day they'd make money and take off no the problem with foolishness is the wise don't like it they don't like it so God uses it his own personal brand of foolishness to thwart and overcome the world's wisdom so how does foolishness work because this seems odd how does foolishness work and I'll show you how it works because it's the exact opposite of what we want it's the antithesis of clever preaching let me show you what do people want what do you naturally want to hear he's going to talk about two groups in verse 22 if you look in verse 22 he talks about two kinds of listeners you have the Jew I call those the religious people who find their righteousness in doing religion people who think they're good because they go to church and dress up they want something from preaching then you have the Greek that's the natural person the person who is just living the non you know the non-believer those are the two groups so according to Paul the Jews want something look at verse 22 for the Jews demand signs they demand signs the idea is miraculous signs the definition of sign here is something that's done that clearly only God can do it's the finger work and power of God it's a great work it's a wonder where you step back and go only God can do that Gordon Fee wrote specifically this word is used in regards to the coming of the Messiah messianic expectations Jews wanted to see God act powerful on behalf of their nation so when Moses came on behalf of Israel he parted the Red Sea it's amazing and the water crashed on the Egyptians look at that and then when David came he brought in the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem oh that's a sign and so in the Jews mind when the Messiah comes God's King he's gonna come and rescue his people and render vengeance on his enemies overwhelming force I mean don't you want God to come and clean up this country with overwhelming force why doesn't God just show up we need to have a powerful king to get rid of these you know these people that are trashing everything don't you want God to come in one bold swift move swift move restore order to the world's economy so you don't lose your 401k and you can keep your vacation home don't you want God to do that he needs to come back now in fact that's what the Jews wanted in the Gospels there's a part in Matthew 12 it's really interesting story Jesus just healed a demon possessed man this is Matthew 12 starts in 22 to 40 he heals this demon possessed man drives a demon out of a guy and the crowd sees it and they're amazed it says in verse 23 the crowds amazed whoa they said this must be the son of David the king he must be coming back and the Jews said, no, he's probably a devil himself. No, he's probably, I bet you Jesus is a devil. And that Jesus said, that's silly. Why would a devil drive out a devil? They, you know, you can't, kingdom can't, wouldn't divide. And he said, if, if I'm driving out demons, then I'm not a demon, so you know what that makes me? Probably the kingdom of God has come and I'm its king. And that made the Jews mad. And they said, oh, okay show us another sign then well he just drove a demon out of a guy 
Show us another sign. And Jesus said, all right, you want one more sign? Because you're so wicked, you're wicked, all you want are signs. You know what you're going to get? You're going to sign a Jonah, a dead man for three days. What kind of a sign is that? I would ask you who, who are Christian, all you want is Jesus to come back. Have you yet died? Because really he's come first to kill us. Second group is the Greek. You know what the Greek wants? Wisdom. According to verse 22, the Greek seeks wisdom. Wisdom on a human level. That means human learning, reason, enlightenment, intellectual excellence, Harvard, Yale, Berkeley, Stanford, health and wellness podcasts, Discovery Channel, and of course, Jeopardy's Daily Double. That kind of wisdom. Brilliant facts, knowing things. Acts 17.20, the Greeks heard Paul speak up on Mars Hill, and they said to him, we want to learn your new teaching. You are bringing new ideas to our ears, and we want to know them. Greeks were about human exploration and advancement. Today we call that progress. We call that self-discovery, self-actualization. We even call that being on the right side of history, one commentator said, these two basic ideas, signs and wisdom, are the two basic idolatries that are ever with us, that we want to hear. The demand for power, we want God to fight for us and kill my enemies, and the demand for progress, human evolution, getting better and better. We all want to hear messages for our personal benefit, spoken from our earthly point of view. That's what we want. We say it like this, Jesus, I want you to come back now, judge my enemies, and in the meantime, give me teaching that will make me healthy, wealthy, and wise. That's what people want. But what do they need? What do people need? Do people really need messages that make life easier as they sit comfortably on their couches waiting for the return of Christ? Is that what preaching's about, to give you what you want or what you need? What do they need? And the answer's in verse 23, and it's shocking, and it's foolish. It's foolish. But we preach Christ crucified. We preach Christ, the Messiah, the one who's David's son, and we preach him dead. He's been killed for us. That's the message? Watch why it's so foolish. It's foolish because it's not what the Jews wanted to hear at all. It says in verse 22, to the Jews that's a stumbling block. Or 23, it's a stumbling block. Why? Because remember the Jews wanted a king coming in power and all Paul says is you get a king who's coming to die. What kind of a message is that? A king who's going to die in a tree that's cursed. For the Greeks, remember what the Greeks wanted? They wanted wisdom for human progress so we can get better and better. And what's the message? No, Jesus came to actually be, be annihilated, to die. What kind of message is that? The cross 
is exactly the opposite of what every prideful person wants to hear. Exactly the opposite. Exactly the opposite of what I want. That's why it's so foolish. But it's everything I need. You may be saying to yourself, so let me get this straight. Let me sum up a little bit. You might be saying, okay, so the basic premise of the Christian message is that instead of a king who has come to crush his enemies, we find a king who's been crushed by those who hate him. And instead of a message of human progress and excellence, all Jesus has for us is utter humiliation and death. Is that it? Yep, I don't want it. I really don't want it. How do I sell that? Gordon Fee says here, and it's critical what he says, from any merely human perspective, the central message of the Christian gospel must always appear as folly. But to people from both groups, the Jews and the Greeks, who get it, this folly turns out the very place God is powerfully at work calling out a people for his name. They are those who are being saved, according to verse 18. The cross is the wisdom of God. How? How does Christ crucified show me his wisdom? So like I said, I'll tell you what, at face value, this message doesn't sell. That's why people like to do this. That's why they do that. But that's why they raise their voice, you know, like that sometimes. Everything in us reacts against Christ crucified. So as a person who sells this and as a person who's hearing about the product, what I want to know is how does the cross show God's wisdom and power? Paul says in two ways. In two ways. Number one, the cross is effective in destroying human pride so no one can boast about their standing. Look at verse 27 through 29. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what's low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God wants to bring human pride to nothing precisely because, as verse 21 said earlier, as we read earlier, pride keeps us from knowing him. We don't know God through pride. So when I'm impressed with myself, when I'm proud of myself, why do I need God? I won't be impressed with him. I don't need him. So what does God do? God sends his son allows his son to be torn apart, have thorns pierce his skull, displayed publicly naked for all to see, points to him, points to the one on the cross, and says, this should be you. God's hope, According to Romans 3.19 is that as we behold Jesus on the cross, every proud mouth will be stopped. Because when an innocent man's red blood is seen dripping from a cursed cross, it is the only hope to stop pride in its tracks. That's all we got. And I'll tell you this, when this foolish message is understood, 
without using the latest sales technique and manipulation, when it's understood, without the big trendy words, without sentimentality, the cross is effective. It's effective. It accomplishes what God meant for it to accomplish. And nothing, nothing in the world can take away our sin save Christ crucified. The truth of the matter is, according to verse 26, the people who have nothing to lose gain this message. They're the ones that really understand it. Verse 26, for consider your calling, what you're like, brothers. Not many of you were that wise when you're called. When you're humble, it comes in. Second reason God uses this, the cross, is the cross connects me, connects me to the life of Christ. The one who justified me, that means made me right in God's eyes, his life becomes mine. Look at verse 30. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. You are in him. Who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So when I stop my boasting, when I admit my sin, when I believe in Jesus, I become connected to him by faith, like really connected. The plug is put into the electric socket, and his life's in me. I am now in the process of being saved. I'm in him. I'm in him. So that means, here's what that means, my proud self died with him on the cross, and now his resurrected life is pumping in me. And we call that salvation. And it works in the past, present, and future. If you look in verse 30, he uses the word righteousness. When I believe in Jesus, I'm made righteous. I am now seen in the eyes of God as pure. So goodness is given to me. That's something that happens the moment I believe, and it's in my past. Present, sanctification. The process of becoming more like him. God started it at righteousness, at justification. Now I'm becoming like him. And then to redemption. Redemption is the future state. Where this proud captive who once was bound in sin is forever set free. I am now a citizen of heaven. It's amazing. So, preaching really matters to God. It's not to impress. It's not for the preacher to sell himself. It's not even to communicate information so you'll be successful. What's it for? God has sent the preacher to find people. To find those who value his son above everything else, even themselves. I want to end with a parable and then ask you one final question. The parable is found... Matthew 22, 1 through 9. Jesus told it. It's a story he told. And listen to what he said. Matthew 12, 22, 1 through 9. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, stories. Jesus told stories saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. So his son's going to get married. The king wants to have a party. So he has all kind of turkey, roast beef, mashed potatoes. Some people want cranberries there. I do. My kids don't, but it will be there. There's probably going to be wine. Read Isaiah 25. Don't blame me. 
So this big feast, huge feast, a wedding feast. And he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast. But they would not come. Again, he sent other servants selling, saying, tell those who were invited, see, I prepared my dinner. I mean, I can, can you smell it? Oh, my oxen and my fatted calves have been slaughtered. And everything's ready. Come on. I'm sure he said, come to the wedding feast. He probably said it in that high voice. Come on. What's wrong with you? It's ready. But they paid no attention. They paid no attention. Because they had their arms crossed. One went off to his farm. I got better things to do. One went to his business. You know, a guy who talks like this, it's all about the bottom line. I'm trying to make some money, all right? Get off my back. I know I don't go to church, but I'm making some money. I need money. See, they're busy. They're too busy for the invitation. Some other servants seized his servants. Actually, the, some other people seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and, he, and they killed them. And the king was angry. And he sent his troops and he destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, you know what? I can still smell the wedding feast. It's still ready. Still ready. You know, the first people I invited, they weren't worthy. They didn't want it. They're not worthy. So go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. Final question. Are you too busy to come to Christ's wedding party? Are you too sophisticated to believe a foolish message? 